These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Good morning. Um, this is Jeff from Coffee with Jeff. I just want to apologize for this week's show. It's a, it's a repeat of a couple shows I did back in 2015. I had a show I was working on for this week, and uh, between the bad weather we've been getting here in Chicago, a lot of snow, work that's been keeping me way, way busy lately, and the fact that the show I was working on needed a bit more research to do right, I decided to put that off for two more weeks, and I thought I'd dig out some old shows that weren't on the feet anymore. I was actually surprised these shows I did back in 2015 were very short, so I strung together two of them. One is of the Cottingly Fairies. Two girls who allegedly took pictures of actual fairies and the Mumbler spirit photography. Uh, William H. Mumbler allegedly could take pictures with his camera and you could see spirits in the background or whatever. I hope you enjoy him. It's sort of a Coffee with Jeff double feature. I promise to be back in two weeks with a very good story. So anyway, thanks for putting up with me. Um, I hope you enjoy these two and... uh, See you later. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. When you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That was a quote from fictional detective Sherlock Holmes in the story The Sign of the Four. Sherlock Holmes, of course, was a London-based consulting detective famous for his astute logic and reasoning. He was created by Scottish author and physician Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and while Sherlock Holmes was hard to fool, Doyle, well, not so much. By the early 1900s, Doyle had experienced a series of tragedies in his life, losing his wife, son, brother, two brother-in-laws, and two nephews. And so for a while, as you might imagine, he sank into a deep depression. And it was at this point in his life he began to look for proof of the existence for life from beyond the grave. The London Spiritualist Alliance newspaper called The Light ran an article that caught his attention, and he thought this might be the proof he was looking for. The story was about two cousins, 16-year-old Elsie White and 9-year-old Francis Griffith, that, in 1917, took a few exciting photographs. Now, Francis was from South Africa, but was staying in England with the Whites while her father fought in World War I. The Whites lived in the English town of Cottonley. The two girls liked to play down by the stream and would often come home with muddy feet and their dresses soaked with water. This really got Elsie's mom angry. They would explain to her that they had been down at the stream playing with fairies. In an effort to prove this, the girls borrowed Elsie's father's glass plate camera. He was an amateur photographer who had his own darkroom. Sure enough, sometime later, the girls produced pictures of the two of them with, well, what appeared to be fairies. These fairies were little white winged creatures that were about a foot tall. Knowing his daughter was a bit of an artist who had attended the Bradford Art College since the age of 13 and had been drawing fairies for some time, Elsie's father figured the girls were just having a laugh and it was all faked. 
A few weeks later, the girls produced more images, including one of Elsie with a little gnome in her hand. Her father still thought Alice was nothing more than a childish prank, but had had enough and forbid the girls from using the camera anymore. But his wife, Elsie's mother Polly, thought differently. She believed the girl's story. At one point, the young girl Frances sent home one of the pictures to a friend in Africa. On the back of the picture, she wrote, It's funny, never used to see them in Africa. Must be too hot for them there. Up to this point, the fairies were only known to the family, but that changed when Elsie's mother, Polly, took them to the meeting of the Theosophical Society, who was having a lecture on fairy life. As one does, the Theosophical Society, which still exists today, is according to Wikipedia, to form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color, to ensure the study of comparative religions, philosophy, and science, to investigate the unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in man. Yeah, you know, that type of thing. Anyway, that's where Polly took the photographs. The photographs were a huge hit with the society. Edward Gardner, the leading member of the society, wrote, The fact that these two young girls had not only been able to see fairies, which others had done, but had actually, for the first time ever, been able to materialize them at a density sufficient for their images to be recorded on photographic plates, meant that it was possible that the next cycle of evolution was underway. Yeah, that's the uh, first thing that would have gone through my head, anyway. Now, to verify these images were genuine, Gardner sent the images, as well as the original glass plate negatives, to photography expert Harold Snelling, who said, The two negatives are entirely genuine, unfaked photographs, with no trace whatsoever of studio work involving cards or paper models. It was about this time that Arthur Conan Doyle got involved after reading about the girls and their fairies. He started working on an article for the paper The Strand with Elsie's father's permission. Her father was impressed that such a great writer had taken interest in the fairies. However, he refused to take any money for the story. Just in case the images were real, he didn't want to soil them with money. Or some people have suggested he was afraid of what would happen if the images were proven to be fakes. Whatever. But Arthur Conan Doyle had no doubts that these cottonly fairies were real. Remember, Doyle was the guy who thought Houdini had real magical powers and wasn't just doing tricks, so, you know, there you go. In 1920, Edward Gardner brought the girls' cameras and explained to them how they worked. The two girls did explain to him that the fairies would never come out as long as other people were watching, so he left them with the cameras telling them to wait for a nice day to get some more pictures. Unfortunately, it rained for the next 14 days. Finally, Elsie's mom, Polly, wrote Edward, saying, The morning was dull and misty, so they did not take any photographs until after dinner, when the mist had cleared away and it was sunny. I went to my sister's for tea and left them to it. When I got back, they had only managed two with fairies. I was disappointed. Later that year, Doyle published his story in The Strand, along with high-resolution photos in which he passionately argued for the authenticity of the images. The girls became big celebrities. These images seemed to capture the imagination of the world. Everyone in England was talking about them. Many believed in the fairies, and just as many thought the whole thing was a hoax. 
By the time Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a book about the girls and their fairies in 1922, a book called The Coming of Fairies, interest in the girls was already fading. The book also damaged Doyle's reputation as the brilliant mind who created legendary Sherlock Holmes. People were starting to see him as an old man who was fooled by two schoolgirls. But to him, he never lost faith that the photos were real and believed it until the day he died. By the 1930s, the girls in the photos were almost forgotten. And then, in 1945, over 20 years later, Edward Gardner published a book called Pictures of Fairies, the Cottonly Photographs, and interest in the girls began all over again. In 1966, a reporter for the Daily Express newspaper tracked down Elsie, who was living in England. The only thing she would say about the photos is that they might have been, as she said, figments of my imagination. A BBC broadcast interview in 1975, Elsie said, I've told you that they're photographs of a figment of our imagination, and that's what I'm sticking to. Later investigations by people like skeptic James Randi in 1978 and Jeffrey Crawley, editor-in-chief of the magazine British Journal of Photography, who did a 10-part series on the Connolly Ferry photographs in 1982 and 1983, both concluded that the images were faked. Randi used computer enhancement and said that strings could be seen supporting the fairies, and also pointed out that the fairies in the pictures were very similar to figures in the children's book called The Princess Mary's Gift Book, published in 1915. The claims of spiritualism have been with us for years. In 1917, two young girls in Yorkshire fooled the world with these photos of fairies. One of their main supporters was the great writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a fervent spiritualist himself. In an interview in 1981, Elsie White told Joe Cooper in the magazine The Unexplained that the fairies were, after all, paper cutouts, and they did use Princess Mary's gift book as an inspiration. So why did these girls wait so long to admit the truth of what they had done? On Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers, a 1985 show on Yorkshire television, Francis explained that the two of them were just too embarrassed to admit the truth. After all, they had fooled Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes. I never even thought of it being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun. And I can't understand it to this day why people were taken in. They wanted to be taken in. But people keep often say to me, don't you feel ashamed that you've made all these poor people look fools? They believed in you. But... We didn't have to tell a lie about it at all because always somebody came out to justify it. It was very embarrassing because, I mean, two village kids with a brilliant man like Conan Doyle. But we could only just keep quiet. On a letter in the late 80s, Francis wrote, I'm fed up with all these stories. I hate those photographs and cringe every time I see them. I thought it was a joke. But everybody else kept it going. It should have died a natural death 60 years ago. Imagine that. Two kids taking a couple of photographs in 1917 and 1920, and 60 years later, people are still talking about them. Oddly, even though Frances admitted that the images were faked, she still claimed, even in later life, that the girls had actually seen fairies and used to play with them down by the stream. 
So what do I think? I think it's more proof that there are people out there who need to believe in strange, magical things. Why do I think that? Because even today there are people out there who still think these photographs are real. Even though the two people involved admitted that they were fakes. And you know, these photographs are actually quite beautiful. I suggest you check them out. They're all over the internet. These photographs were taken with very primitive equipment in 1917 and 1920 by two young girls, yet they created, in my opinion, real works of art. There have been at least two films based on this story, both in 1997. Fairy Tale, a true story starring Peter O'Toole, and Photographing Fairy starring Ben Kingsley. Francis Griffith died in 1986, and Elsie White died two years later in 1988. Do you believe in fairies? Francis and Elsie shared a life of whispered secrets and make-believe. Until one day, they happened to make the biggest discovery of the 20th century. No one I saw one, did you see it? We've taken a photograph. Strong. Good heavens. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed it. So you believe in fairies, do you? The fairies are going to come out and kick your butt. Sure they are. Fairy tale, a true story. This year, the holidays are more magical than ever. It's time for a flashback to some of the events that happened on this day in history. Today is February 14th, and on this day in 1931, Dracula, the American pre-code supernatural horror film, was released. This film was directed by Todd Browning and starred Bela Lugosi. It began a whole series of horror films at Universal Pictures. Also released on this day in 1971 was Countess Dracula, a British Hammer horror film. It starred Ingrid Pitt and is about a countess who keeps her youthful appearance by bathing in the blood of young innocent women. In music, in 1976, Dreamboat Annie, the debut album by Heart featuring the sisters Anne and Nancy Wilson, was released. Also released on this day in 1977 was Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. How many colorful Hawaiian shirts were sold due to this song? Born on this day in 1916 was Edward Platt, the American actor best known for his portrayal as the chief in the series Get Smart. He also appeared in the films The Rebel Set, The Explosive Generation, and Shock Treatment. Also born on this day in 1926 was Irving Yaworth, the German-born American film director, producer, screenwriter, and theme park builder. Irvin directed such classics as The Blob, 4D Man, and Dinosaurus. Other folks born on this day were John Barrymore, Jack Benny, Thelma Ritter, Louise Maxwell, Vic Morrow, Florence Henderson, Gregory Hines, Teller, Meg Tilly, and Simon Pegg. Today is National Flag of Canada Day in Canada, and it's also National Donor Day. You know, we should all be donors. Many lives depend on it. And one last thing before I go. On this day in 1798, on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, Matthew Lyon from Vermont spit in the face of Roger Griswold from Connecticut. Griswold attacked Lyon with his cane, 
and Lion defended himself with fire tongs. These were adults that were elected by Americans to represent the United States. Hmm. And now let's return for part two of Coffee with Jeff. The year was 1871. A mysterious lady dressed in black with a veil covering her face walked into the William H. Mumbler Photography Studio. She identified herself as a Mrs. Tundle and she wanted to have her picture taken. The photographer requested that she take a seat while he went into the darkroom to get the glass plate ready. When he returned, he found the woman sitting, but the veil was still draped over her face. He asked if this is the way she wanted to be photographed. She responded, When you are ready, I will remove it. And so as soon as he was ready, she revealed her face and Mumbler took the lens cap off, letting her likeness be transferred to the glass plate. When the negative was developed, he saw something unusual. There, behind Mrs. Tundle, was the ghostly image of a man. He was standing with his hands on the woman's shoulders. The figure was tall, had a beard, and looked like Abraham Lincoln. The woman, who identified herself as Mrs. Tundale, was actually the widow of the great ex-president. Her name, Mary Todd Lincoln. Ever since the President of the United States of America had been shot to death at Ford Theater, Mary Todd had been trying to contact him by the use of spiritualists. At some point, she began to use the name Mrs. Tundale as she thought an alias would help her avoid recognition. Mary Todd learned of this photographer who could take pictures of those who had moved on to the spirit world from one of the spiritualists she had visited. She loved the picture she had gotten from Mumbler and it gave her comfort to know that Abe was standing by her side at all times. William Mumbler had been taking pictures such as these for over 10 years. Originally, he worked as an engraver in Boston, and he was also an amateur photographer. One day around 1860, he took a self-portrait. For you younger kids, that's what you might call a selfie. In the photo behind him was a ghostly apparition of a young girl. Now, if this was some sort of accident while developing the picture or a deliberate fraud, we'll never know. And at first, Mumbler made a joke of it, showing it to his friends and saying that it had the likeness of a dead cousin. But when he realized that those he had showed it to began to believe that he had actually taken a picture of a ghost, things began to change. Stories of this amazing photograph began to appear in newspapers, especially the ones like the Banner of Light, which was a spiritualist newspaper of the time. That was the beginning of what's now known as spirit photography, and the 1800s was the perfect time for something like this. After all, death was everywhere. Not only was disease running rampant, but the Civil War was also raging as well. So many people were desperate to know that their loved ones who had passed on were still alive in another world. When Mumbler took their picture and they could see an apparition that looked like the one they had lost, they felt comfort knowing that they were still around. He set up shop on Washington Street in Boston with his wife Hannah. Hannah was a famous healing medium. She would greet people coming into the studio and have a talk with them. Now I'm not saying that Mumler was scamming people, but if he was, having his wife talk to the clients first and maybe do a cold reading and, and find out who they were grieving over might just help them in the dark room a little, don't you think? It wasn't long before skeptics in the Boston area began to accuse Mumbler of being a charlatan. Some reports say that people began to notice that some of the spirits in the images were of people who were actually still alive. Magician John Mulholland in his 1938 book Beware Familiar Spirits wrote of this. He said, Recognition went too far. Dr. Gardner, a leading Boston spiritualist, recognized some of the extras as living Bostonians. 
Word was quickly spreading that he was a fake, a fraud, so in 1868 he packed up and moved his business to New York City. While in New York, numerous photography experts analyzed his images and all of them agreed that they were not fake. But you must remember that photography was something new and it had only been around for about 20 years. And really, from just looking at a photo, what could one really tell? This was a very profitable business for Mumbler, who charged more than 10 times the going rate for a picture without a guarantee that he would produce an image of a spirit. Some people had to come back for many visits before they got the photo they were looking for. Now, a skeptic might say that if he didn't have the right stock image in his catalog that matched what was expected, by having a client come back for another sitting might give Mumbler more time to find the right model. That's if he was faking the photographs. And then Mumbler was arrested. The police had set up a sting operation and he was arrested on charges of fraud. The trial was a huge media sensation. The question was, were these images darkroom tricks or images made by divine intervention? B.T. Barnum, the great showman, testified against Mumbler, saying that he knows a humbug and a hoaxer when he sees one. Now, it might seem odd that a man known for being a trickster himself would be against Mumbler, but, but where Barnum's attractions were for fun and amusement, Mumbler was making huge profits by taking advantage of the vulnerability of people in a fragile state, people who had experienced loss and were desperate for something, anything. The defense brought in to testify those that believed in the spiritualism of the photos. These folks testified at how much they believed in Mumbler and how much they believed that their dearly departed were in the photos. The prosecutor, Elbridge Gary, summarized this very well by saying, Those that went in prepared to believe, of course, did believe on very slight proof. And that is all the evidence of the defense proves. It proves evidence of a belief in the prisoner's statements, not the truth of those statements. There is no positive proof whatsoever of any supernatural agency, only evidence that certain persons believe it exists. The prosecution put forth many of their own ghost images just to prove how easy it was to create such spirit photography. But the main evidence the prosecution had were 20 photographs of Mulmers that they claimed were fraudulent. But the defense argued that who could really say in the end that these photographs were evidence of anything unless the prosecution could not locate the exact cause of the manipulations? In other words, they just couldn't say that they were fake images of ghosts. They had to be able to prove it. And while they said that there were nine different ways the photographs could have been created, they never proved any method that was actually used. Now, the judge was morally convinced that Mulmer had practiced fraud and deception, but despite this said that the prosecution had failed to make out their complaint. And with that, William H. Mulmer was acquitted of all charges. In other words, the prosecution had not pinpointed the trickery and therefore had not made out its case. Years later, Mulmer said, in these days of earnest inquiry for spiritual truths, I feel that it is incumbent upon me to contribute what evidence of a future exists that I may have obtained in my 14 years' experience in spirit photography. Nevertheless, it has been a difficult task to battle with the skeptical world, to bear prosecution in poverty, to outlive slander, and to overcome the many obstacles that beset the path of one whose mission it is to advance some new truth. After the trial, he moved back to Boston and opened a new studio, continuing his spirit photography. 
Now, as far as the picture of Mary Todd Lincoln goes, the story we told you at the beginning was the way that William H. Mulmer described it. But what he failed to mention was that he had taken a picture of Mary Todd when she was still the first lady, somewhere around 1863. This was not a spirit image. It was just an ordinary portrait that he had taken. And this sort of puts his claim that he didn't know who she was in doubt. Mulder died at the age of 51 in 1884. He was living in poverty, but never admitted that he was a hoaxer, saying that he was just only a humble instrument for the revelation of a beautiful truth. He held many patents on a number of photography techniques. Before he died, he destroyed all the negatives of the images he created. So I guess we'll never know for sure if he was a fraud or if he actually took pictures of ghosts. A little bit before I go, you know, listening to those two old shows, I, I go, wow. One, I didn't realize my shows had gotten so long compared to the way I was doing it in 2015. And two, I was like, boy, I'd like to redo those. Maybe I'll do that one of these days. Start taking old shows that I did when I was new to podcasting and redo them because I think I could find a lot more information and make them a lot more entertaining or whatever. I don't know. I hope everybody out there didn't mind me doing this, but I will be back with a really good story, I think, anyway, in two weeks. And uh, anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you for listening. You know, it takes money to do this podcast, so if you uh, could help me out, I do have a Patreon page, and you can find a link to that at the Coffee with Jeff website. That's coffeewithjeff, all one word, dot com. Just look for the Patreon link up on the top left. You can send me an email at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason, and you can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're encouraged to join. And you know, if you have a suggestion for an episode, you can use any of those places to let me know. I'm always looking for suggestions. And links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I want to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to everybody who listens, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this show on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, stay warm, stay healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Oh
the dawn of just new day. Coffee with just coffee, coffee with just coffee with just coffee, or coffee with just. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee or coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee and coffee with Jeff. Thank you.